Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 85. This is your host, Deb Falzoy. And this week, I'm talking about what to do when you find yourself mobbed at work. I'm talking with Janice Harper, who's the author of Mobbed, What to Do When They Really Are Out to Get You. She's a cultural anthropologist who's writing on mobbing and bullying have appeared in the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. Are you ready to hear what Janice has to say about this subject? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. Okay, so I want to start with the question of just what is mobbing and how it's different than bullying? Well, mobbing is group bullying, essentially. It's when not just one person or a couple of people are engaged in abusive behaviors, but when it's the, when more and more people join in until to the point where people aren't even aware of what they're doing. So you say in your book, Mobbed, um, what to do when they really are out to get you, um, that the person branded and exiled is the person with the least amount of power. So I I was actually really intrigued by some of the myths that you talked about in the, in that we believe in the bullying world. Um, Can, what myths can, can we dispel, especially by looking at how mobbing works or Okay. Well, I think one of the biggest myths is the idea that this happened to you because you were so good at what you did and you had nothing to do with it. You were so good. Everyone is jealous of you. And so there are two parts there. One is that everyone is, you're too good. Everyone is jealous of you. Sometimes that's the case, um, but not always. I mean, that, that myth presumes that if you're not a good worker, you can't be bullied. Well, we know you can be a poor worker and you can be bullied. Both things can be true. Um, the other is that um, this happened to you because you, you're so good at what you do and you did nothing to deserve it. Well, let's think that one through. Okay, you have a coworker who a few women have had problems with. They've reported them for sexual harassment. And then pretty soon others say, yeah, we got to get rid of this person. And yeah, they do good work, but they're bad for our work culture because they are bad to women. So everyone begins to avoid the person. They don't work with the person. They said they do what they say in the bullying literature, you know, spread the word. And is that not mobbing? That is mobbing. And then you get to, well, did they do anything to deserve it? And one of the things with mobbing is there's this, um, people think they are not engaged in mobbing or they are not engaged in bullying if the person deserves it. And they'll say, I didn't bully them, they deserved it. This wasn't mobbing, they had it coming. Well, all acts of aggression are done in the name of self-defense. Even Hitler viewed his aggressions as defensive because we like to see our, view ourselves as good people. So when we act badly, we justify it as well, there was a cause. So to get back to then, it means you did nothing to deserve that. Well, maybe you engaged in some real bad behaviors that led people to take the actions they did. That doesn't mean you deserve to be treated with cruelty. It doesn't mean you necessarily deserve to be driven out of your job or career. 
Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But there's another part of that, which I think is the more common part, is you can be mobbed and not deserve it at all. At the same time, I think it helps to have some self-reflection. Well, what is it that about me that has alienated people? Like the Maya Angelou quote, people um, will always remember how you how they felt around you. And a person can be mobbed with a and have by people who formerly were very respecting of them. They tr they were well loved in the workplace well-respected, and then some circumstances changed. Someone in a position of power comes along and says, I want that person out. Next thing you know, everyone's turning against them. Uh, that happens, and it happens quite commonly. But at the same time, how did we react to the aggression? How did What, what were our social responses? And while some, I'm often um, accused of victim blaming for that, I see it very differently. I see it as very empowering because I hear from people all the time who say, you know, I was mobbed in the last three places I worked. What, you know, why? Um, or everywhere I go, I'm bullied. Well, then maybe some self-reflection to find out what are your reactions to aggression? What are your re social reactions? What are the social cues you're giving out? How do people feel around you? And the more you can reflect on that, the more you can prevent bullying and mobbing in the future. That's a perfect segue to um, your background in cultural anthropology and, you know, you're, you looked at animal behavior. So in group psychology and what, what can animal behavior specifically teach us about mobbing at work and just how the, the group dynamic takes hold? Okay, well, we think of bullying, what that gets to another one of the myths is that bullying is done by evil people, cruel people, bad people. Actually, yeah, sometimes. But, you know, bullies, bullying, more aggressive people engage in that. But mobbing, it, when you get a lot of people engaged in it, is done by kind, caring, humane, compassionate people who have been swept up in, in this frenzy. And that's because we're primates. And we, t we often lose sight of that, of our animal nature. But when we're under intense stress, which is what happens in a mobbing context. People are get caught up in the social hysteria. Our primal nature comes out and that's our primate nature. And we are as a species um, social, we depend upon the group. And that's why mobbing happens because if someone is perceived as a threat to that group for a multitude of reasons, usually having to do with someone in a position of power signaling, I want that member of the group out. Um, in order to maintain our place in the group, we will join in with the shunning and the aggressiveness toward the targeted person. So that's how we get swept up in um, mobbing. And so by looking at how animals um, do the same, there aren't, it doesn't happen with all animal species, but it does happen with primate species. Uh, wolves, we'll see it with wolves. Birds, that's where the term came from of mobbing, is watching birds attack other, um, other birds. So where you find members of one species um, gathering and collectively pushing out 
the perceived threat of their same species. That's where you have mobbing. And so we see it with wolves, we see it with birds, we see it with um, uh, many of the primate species and ourselves. Um, can you describe like how that translates to a workplace? Um, I loved the, like the detail you got into in your book about you know how this starts and how it then evolves and escalates. And basically, you know, if somebody to kind of sum it up from how I understood it, if somebody in power wants you out, mm -hmm. they will make sure that they kind of create this environment that you know mm -hmm. this shunning um, environment. So oh, right, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you describe like how? Well, how does it happen? <laughs> Okay, someone in a position of power identifies someone they want out. And this can come for a variety of reasons. It might simply be, oh, that worker is old. You know, a new manager comes in and says, let's get rid of the old workers. Or it might be um, this person just doesn't fit in. We don't feel they fit in. And often, so that might be they're the wrong gender, wrong sexuality, wrong age, wrong race, you know, what have you. Uh, so someone in a position, or, or, or it might be we want them out because they have made an accusation. They have brought attention to a problem in the organization. They've reported sexual harassment. They've reported uh, discrimination. They've been a whistleblower, whatever it is. This person, they want out. Now, in an organization where you can just say, okay, you're fired. <laughs> it, you're not going to be mobbed. The person in position of power is going to just fire you. But if you're in an institution or organization where it's not so easy, it's unionized, there's a tenure system, um, the person has um, longevity, and for whatever reason, it's not so easy to fire them and get rid of them. And they're not going to quit easily because they have seniority and they're getting ready to retire, because they have tenure, because they're a member of the union, or because there are no other jobs in the community or whatever. So for whatever reason, they're not going to easily quit. So you can't just make their work life difficult. So what happens in that situation is the person in a position of power signals to the rest of the workforce, this person is not favored by me. And they may come right out and say it. They may often do, you know, I want you out and ask people to make reports. This person, please, they may send out emails. It, there's been some concerns about this employee. If you have anything to report, please come to me. Or it may be, might be more subtle. Often it is, it's more subtle, but people pick up on those cues. Oh, the boss doesn't like so-and-so, so I'll keep my distance. So, um, that's how it begins. Person in a position of power signals they want someone out. That person is perceived as different. That difference is given meaning. So that difference is, the difference might be um, age, it might be ability, it might be gender, it might be a different um, ideological perspective. And then that difference is giving, given meaning that we can't have someone with that ideological perspective here. We can't, you know, people of this gender, sexuality are nothing but trouble. Um, whatever it is, that difference is given meaning. And so then you have the person in position of power saying we want them out. And 
little by little, they begin to plant ideas in the heads of other workers. They, the workers not only see this person is no longer favored, um, but they get favors at work. And particularly, and here's one of the unique things, when you have interesting things, when you have a person who is reported um, gender discrimination or age discrimination or race discrimination or whatever it is, um, often what you will find in the wake is members of that same gender, race, or whatever the category is, rather than unite and support that person, typically what happens is suddenly they begin getting favors because there's no better way to defeat um, a discrimination lawsuit than to show, oh, well, members of that race have been receiving promotions. So then you get the members of that race or gender, what have you, um, turning against the person because they are being favored. So, so you have that little subtle thing of granting favors while punishing the other person. So that makes people, oh, well, you know, management, I've been bitching about management for the last 10 years, but now suddenly management's getting really nice. They, you know, they gave me a raise. They've given me the, um, uh, the project that was going to go to the target whatever. So suddenly they're getting all kinds of perks. And another thing happens is they begin, uh, they, they will go, they'll particularly look at the people close to them. So not only the people who are the same demographic group that there's a potential discrimination, but friends of that person. Because once you get the friends to turn against them, then they're essentially defeated. So anyone who is close to them will work side by side with them all day or who socializes with them or is the member of the same group, they'll be pulled aside and they'll be set, they'll say things like, you know, I know this is hard on you uh, because I know how close you are. So I'm not going to ask you to get involved at all. I just want you to know your job is safe and it'll, it'll be very subtle. And then as they're walking away, they might say, oh, by the way, uh, that project you wanted, I'm going to put you on it or that, you know, those extra funds you wanted, they're yours. So there, it'll be little tiny little things so that the person begins to see, uh, well, it's not so bad for me. And then they feel a sense of guilt. They feel this, that they'll have agreed with some kind of thing. They'll say something like, well, I know she can be really difficult at times, or I know he's your friend, but you know, there are things you don't know. And all the person has to do in the context of these closed door meetings, which they usually are, is agree with management, even just like, oh, yes, I know. And they typically will because the person who's targeted for mobbing is emotionally exhausted. They're under constant attack. They're in a constant state of flight or fight. And so they have been a drag to be around. They're talking all the time. When I get calls from mobbing targets, half the time, I can't even get past hello before I hear this babble, 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 babble. And all I'll say then is, let me guess, you've been mobbed <laughs> because it's, a, it's the, that just emotional overload. So the person, um, the person is a drag to be around. So the person who the, is close to them, management is playing this little game and they'll agree. And once they make that agreement, they feel a tinge of guilt and we don't like to feel guilt. We don't like to feel shame. We don't like to feel we're betraying our friends. So what do we do? 
we then quickly uh, shift into cognitive dissonance. Well, it's their own fault. <laughs> so very quickly, you will see friends make that shift from I'm on your side to it's your own fault. And we see it in films all the time. And, um, it, it, and in the recent Netflix series, The Chair, I think they do a brilliant job of depicting that, of that shift from we're on your side to it's your own fault. You brought it this on yourself. And that's when the distancing comes. You mentioned um, in your book, the, the uh, like around this playbook that there are certain um, work cultures that are sort of ripe for this aggression. I know that in work with workplace bullying in general, we talk about nurses and, and teachers being amongst the most, uh, or having, you know, some of the mm -hmm. toxic cultures, but I was really fascinated by, you know, your reasons for um, why some of these industries are, are uh, more ripe for aggression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, first, any place where it's very difficult to get rid of the worker. So any place where you can't easily fire them. So anything with union, tenure system, um, contracts, any place where you can't easily fire them and where they won't qu easily quit, as I said before. So those types of jo jobs. Um, any place where... Um, leaving the job means relocating for another one. So you see this in academic positions. You can't just get another academic position in your own town. You have to do it, you have to look nationally, which means selling your home, moving your family, your spouse has to find a new job and if not career, take your kids out of school. So you're not gonna quickly leave. So any place where there's that geographical mobility, so, um, churches, um, any, any place of worship where um, if the person leaves, they're not going to get another job in the same um, town. They're going to have to leave. But nurses and teachers are an interesting one. And I don't know for sure, but I, my theory on nursing and teaching, because there, it is so prevalent with mobbing, both of those, um, you can get another job teaching in your same community. You can get another job as a nurse in your same community fairly easily. So why is mobbing so prevalent in these two professions? Well, both of those professions are predominantly a single gender. And in this case, predominantly female. So as males enter that profession, they become targets of mobbing. Whenever we find a new type of person entering, so as you know, as women enter the workforce, you know, women in male-dominated jobs commonly mob. Um, that's one part of it, but there's another part of that. In teaching and nursing, there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of room for advancement. You can only advance to a certain level, like director of nursing, um, not many, you know, a little bit of movement into administration and teaching. So when a person does get into that position of um, in some kind of supervisory position, they cling to that power because there's no other place to go to take that. So they're very, they very swiftly swat down any threats to that power, perceived threats to that power. So that's the only, that's the only theory I have and that others around quickly will align with 
whoever's in super supervisory position. But there, others may have other theories about why that is. Um, and then um, sort of getting back to the, the playbook, you talk a lot about gossip and rumors, um, accusations, shunning, baiting, false memories. Um, can you talk about just some of those, uh, you know, factors that kind of play into that escalation of the mobbing? It's an awful lot of stuff packed in there. Well, let's start with gossip and rumors. We tend to think of gossip and rumors as the same thing, but they're quite different. Rumor is a discrete piece of information. And often those rumors are true. Um, you know, did you hear so-and-so did this? And it, it, as it gets told and retold, it changes and elaborates and usually gets much worse than the original uh, true part. Gossip is about a person's essential character. So, you know, this is a bad person. This is a, you know, this is, that's a terrible worker. This is, you know, this person is crazy. And crazy, complaining, those are two very common characterizations of the mobbing target. So um, as mobbing happens, the rumors start, the gossip starts. And as people recognize, you know, this is, I could be in trouble if I hang out, if I'm seen hanging out with this person, I better keep my distance. And then they begin hearing these rumors and the rumors might start with like, there's more to the story than you know. That's a common one. And that's real vague, but that's like, whoa, I didn't know what. And then little pieces, you know, so as the rumors spread, they become bigger. And often you get then get shared. Oh, yeah, I had that experience with a person, too. And that's one reason I don't like a, a lot of the anti-bully literature that says share your experiences. And I get it. I get why if someone is bullying you, you do want to, you know, is this happening to you too? So, or sexual harassment. I totally get that. At the same time, what happens in this context of mobbing is stories begin, people begin reevaluating past things. Well, I didn't think of it as sexual harassment at the time, but now that I think about it in this new context, yeah, that's what it is. And what happens, we elaborate, we add new details because the story isn't that interesting without more details. So, and, and as, the, as, the, um, as the gossip and rumors begin circulating, it's entertaining initially. And people, particularly people who had no power earlier, find that they gain entry into this social group if they can contribute to the story. So what happens is little incidences, you know, the way a person looked walking down the hall, the little exchange at the water cooler, these things become elaborated to change drastically um, what happened and the context of how it happened and the intent of the person. So that the person who at one point didn't have much power, suddenly they're standing around in the group and they're like, yeah, well, here's what happened with me. And they tell some bizarre story that, um, you know, they came up to me and they are just glaring and just little, very subjective things, but they just compound and compound and compound until pretty soon everyone just wants that person gone. They have heard all kinds of crazy things. They want to stay away from them. At the same time, the person is probably not sleeping at night. 
is being totally subjected to escalating abusive behaviors and they're snapping, they're frightened, they're exhausted, they're confused. So they look crazy, they act crazy, they talk crazy. And that all feeds into this perception that they're crazy and need to go. Um, and then how do like investigations kind of reinforce this whole playbook of, of abuse? Well, as most of these um, anti-bullying books have pointed out, HR is not your friend. Um, HR, human, uh, the human resources departments, as well as diversity um, departments, they work for the employer. They work for the organization. So their purpose is to defeat any lawsuit. Their purpose is to get rid of problems. And if you are perceived as the problem, they are going to get rid of you. And that gets to, you know, the person in a position of power. It's, um, you know, you can go to human resources, you can go to the diversity um, center and say, I'm being um, a victim, but who, who is it that you're accusing? If the person you're accusing has power and you do not, you're going to be the problem not that person. And so that is how they do it. Plus they're not trained to investigate. I, I have never heard of um, uh, one of these investigations actually take, actually engaging in um, professional investigation techniques. <laughs> they, they are not, uh, they're rarely trained interviewers. They usually have an agenda and they are trying to interview you to get you to conform to what they've already determined. But more importantly, one of the common things is we won't, we will decide which witnesses we will contact. So if you come in and you say, well, you know, talk to so-and-so because they were there. Um, they will, if they've already decided, okay, we want to, um, uh, we're concerned about the person you've reported. So yes, we're going to go talk to those witnesses. On the other hand, if the person you've reported is someone with power or access to power through their social networks, you know, they're not going to talk to those witnesses until the mobbing has reached such a stage that they know those witnesses are going to turn against you. And this happens again and again and again. I hear it all the time. The investigation was an inquisition. The investigation, you know, they didn't talk to my um, witnesses. They, um, you know, they showed absolutely no interest in any of the evidence I, should, I produced. They knew, they decided from the beginning who they were going, you know, what, what the story was. And that's typically what happens. So for people who are getting mobbed, knowing that this is a basically a playbook where, like you said, the, the narrative is determined or the, the people in power determine very quickly what the narrative will be. Mm -hmm. um, so how does somebody who's getting mobbed survive this? How do they? Well, one of the problems is you don't recognize it at first. You're, you, people typically start out with, this is an issue of unfairness, of fairness or injustice. And they're focused on the truth and evidence. 
And they don't realize that the more evidence you have, the harder they're going to come down on you. And they don't recognize at first the subtle betrayals that become less subtle as time goes on. They still believe their friends are their friends. They still believe that um, they're going to get support from their um, network or people in their same demographic um, so that they're so they don't recognize it at first and people will continue to pretend to be their friends and smile and be friendly and ask what's going on and how's it going and express an interest so they won't recognize it at first but little by little they will they'll see the, the they'll feel the distancing they'll feel the subtle betrayals by the time they recognize this is a full-fledged mobbing it's usually too late to do anything about it. Um, the, almost everyone believes the evidence is on their side and over time, the truth will prevail. The truth will set them free. It won't. It once, once mobbing has accelerated, people have so changed their views about you and so convinced themselves that you're a threat that your evidence won't matter. It will only cause them to double down and dig in their heels and the truth won't matter and justice won't matter. In their minds, you're a threat for whatever reason. And the best thing you can do is to leave. It's a difficult decision to make because if you're in a mobbing, you're probably in an institution where or organization um, or employment setting where leaving isn't easy. I mean, some people, and it's not, we're talking about workplaces here, but it happens in communities, it happens in particularly ones with um, housing associations or condo boards, um, retirement centers. It happens in any churches, um, synagogues, any place that people congregate in a group. So it's usually in a setting that you can't leave easily without paying a huge economic or social cost. And my best, my, my advice to everyone, if you're being mobbed, and once you recognize this is happening, lay low. Stop threatening that, I, you know, I'm going to sue you. Stop um, trusting in people around you to, you know, don't confide in people. Lay low. Keep your mouth shut as much as possible. Get out of the situation. And that's a really hard one to do, especially if it means a major economic um, cost. But sometimes that's what you have to do. Cut your losses early and start a new chapter in your life. Um, and reflect. I think that you need to really um, reflect on, okay, how am I alienating people? How am I coming across? I'm probably coming across kind of crazy and probably coming across as totally preoccupied with what's going on in my life and not on the job. So you really have to take some, um, do some self-reflecting and um, in a way that doesn't make you, uh, you, you can't join the mob. You can't engage in self-loathing behavior. That's totally defeatist, but self-reflection and helping yourself to become 
a kinder, gentler, more compassionate person, and more compassionate to the people who themselves are frightened and not quite understanding what's happening. Um, so given a lot of sort of like these rules of animal behavior, group psychology, sort of this playbook on mobbing, um, what do you see as the solution to this issue? Or like, what, what can we as bystanders especially do when we, you know, when this mob is getting rooted? Well, I think that because mobbing is innate to our species, um, it, it's like warfare. We can uh, oppose it. We can uh, try to ban it, but it's always going to happen. Happen, And that's one reason I'm opposed to most of these anti-bullying laws, because I believe that um, they were more likely to be used against targets than, you know, that the person who is being mobbed, all you have to do is get everyone to say, well, they're the ones who are always complaining. They're the ones who are a threat. Um, but I think that the more we raise awareness about mobbing and about and, and dispel the myth that it's something that bullying is something um, that mobbing and bullying are the same thing because they are not. Mobbing is group aggression. Um, dispel the myth that it's something that evil people do because everyone has engaged in some form of mobbing behavior in their life without ne not necessarily even being aware of it. But they have joined the larger group to shun and avoid and disparage someone else. And so we have to become more aware of ourselves and our own behaviors. I think that the more we're aware of what mobbing is and the fact that we are all um, uh, vulnerable to engaging in it, that in the workplace we become we can become more better critical thinkers when we start hearing the gossip to think, well, maybe it's not quite what's being said. Um, we have to really resist, you know, our letting our political ideologies um, define, oh, well, if, it's, if that's what you've been accused of, then you must be guilty. You know, if, you know, if you're accused of um, this behavior and my ideology is opposed to that behavior, then I want nothing to do with you. We, you know, the assumption that it's true once the accusation has been made. Um, the assumption that there, you know, there is no room for nuance or complexity or ambiguity. So be, become more aware of, um, of ourselves and our propensity to believe what we want to believe. Um, become more aware that if a person is being targeted for mobbing, they are going to be acting like they normally do. And it doesn't mean they're a threat. It doesn't mean they're crazy. Um, they're going to be um, pushed into um, a state of mind that that fight or flight um, syndrome. Now, if they have access to guns, that's a different thing. I think that a, I think that some of these workplace shootings could definitely have been avoided by um, treating the person a little um, kinder, but. Yeah, the vast majority of people being mobbed are threats to themselves, not threats to others, because mobbing can drive people to suicide. 
because it deprives us of that social support we need to survive. It defines us as unworthy of human um, dignity and kindness and humanity and compassion. Um, so I just think that as we raise awareness about mobbing, it's important to shift that. The anti-bully literature tends and movement tends to focus on that other, the bully, the bad person. There's very little reflection on ourselves. And I think that's the shift that has to be made. Let's stop worrying about that other person in the workplace. Let's start thinking more about ourselves in the workplace and how we treat people. Um, and that gets to my last question of like, what do you what do you want to make sure any target of, of mobbing knows? I know that you um, talk a lot in your book or talk some in your book about compassion, um, which you just, mm -hmm. that, you know, the kindness piece. Is there anything else that you want to add about like how we shift our, our cultures and kind of weighing on that compassion piece? Well, I think what I, the point I just made gets to that about, you know, reflect more on ourselves. Um, and I think we also were particularly in this time in our nation, I'm, I think we're just, we haven't been this divisive in my lifetime. Um, well, perhaps in the sixties and the, you know, the um, Jim Crow era, but we're, our country is divided now and we see that viciousness on both sides, um, justifying violence against other groups or aggression against other groups, shunning your own family members. Um, so I would say that self-reflection, but I think also, and this may not be what you were trying to get at, but I think one point to make is the, I hear so much from so many people who've been bullied they all want to, when it's over, they all want to, you know, I'm going to do an expose. I'm going to um, write a book about it. I'm going to, um, uh, you know, I'm going to start writing and I'm going to do all kinds of um, speak out about what happened to me. And as soon as people hear, you know, this is going to humiliate my employer. Well, that's one of the most self-defeating things you can possibly do uh, for a number of reasons. One is um, you're, it's maintaining the engagement. The more you attack an employer or whoever has done this, the more they are going to try to show that you cannot, you are not credible. And that means that you are crazy, that you have an ax to grind. They're going to continue their attacks on you. You're going to prolong the mobbing. Um, and, the more, and they're likely to win because they're going to make claims about you that will repel people. Um, the other thing is our memories, our, our brains don't distinguish between the memory of an event and the live event. So that as we relive it through writing about it or um, talking about it, we immediately go back to that um, place in our brains. Our brains think it's happening again. We feel the same emotions. So if you are going to write about it, if you are going to talk about it, give, give yourself a few years distance. Get away from it. Um, almost everyone who contacts me wants to continue the fight because they feel defeated. They want to 
um, lead victoriously. And I think sometimes just accept defeat and move on. I think that is the easiest way to heal. It might not be the message we want to hear. You know, I have been mobbed viciously. I lost a tremendous amount. And I love nothing more to hear, oh, suddenly I'm victorious. Well, I'm never going to be in that battle. Um, move on start, you know, life is too short. And if we stay in that battle seeking justice, it's not going to come. The best justice we can get is to live the best life we can. I love that. Yeah. The more we like stand in it, the, the more we're like keeping that. Keeping it alive. Power dynamic going, yeah. like giving them more power, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Janice. I really appreciate your time and your insights. And this book is excellent. Um, I will like share the, the uh, how to get this book for people listening to this. Um, but I really appreciate thank you. you and um, thanks so much. Well, thank you. And keep up your good work. You're doing excellent work. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.